Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Rupa Valdez, an Associate Professor with a dual appointment in the Department of Engineering Systems and Environment in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, and also the Department of Public Health Sciences in the School of Medicine at the University of Virginia. Her research focuses on understanding and designing solutions to support the ways in which people manage health at their homes and in the community. Valdez is also an advocate for disability rights. In this podcast, Professor Valdez will talk with us about her work and her research. So thank you so much, Professor Valdez, for speaking with me today. Thank you, Susan. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. So first, can you start with explaining the concepts of patient work and patient ergonomics? Of course. So if we think of patient work, kind of a nice place to start is to think about any time you've been sick or any time a family member may have been sick and the additional work um, or additional activities that you may have had to take on during that time. So that could be everything from scheduling appointments with your physician to going to a pharmacy to get medication to searching online for credible information about what you or your family member may be going through. All of those things could be considered patient work. Um, and so kind of a formal definition is thought of as the effort or exertion of time and effort by patients and their families to perform or accomplish something. Um, and so the actual broader concept is a little bit bigger than what I just talked about. So those things that I mentioned, those tasks like scheduling appointments or going to a pharmacy would be considered under the umbrella of illness work. So illness work is considered to be one type of patient work. Um, and that is things that may be very directly related to a health condition, or and that could be a chronic condition, it could be an acute condition, um, like breaking a leg, for example. Then there's the everyday work that happens, which is another component of patient work. And that's everything from meal preparation to you know, going to work to all the household things that may happen in the context of living with family members or with a roommate, or even on your own. Um, so doing dishes to doing laundry. And all of those can also be shaped, of course, by the experience of having um, a health condition or chronic illness. And then the last part that we typically think about that's intertwined with these other two is called biographical work. And that's more along the, um, the lines of identity formation. And so the way you may tell a story or a narrative in your own head about how your identity may shift or your sense of self may shift in the context of having a health condition. Um, much of the thinking about this has been around having chronic health conditions because the idea that it's a long-term um, experience that somebody has and that their family members um, also experience. Um, but certainly many of the things I mentioned also may occur in the context of a more acute illness. Um, we've had some other additional Kind of components of patient work. And one is this idea of what is visible and what is invisible. So we sometimes think about a lot of patient work as being invisible in the sense that if we think about a more formal healthcare system, so if you're speaking to a nurse, you're speaking to a clinician, for example, these things may not be necessarily visible um, and they may be 
not visible in the sense that they may not be particularly valued, they may not be recognized, um, and they may be kind of taken for granted as compliance. Um, and so a lot of times when we think about what happens in a clinical setting, there may not always be a lot of guidance on how to perform patient work, and there may not be a lot of support. Right? Patients are often asked to make sure they follow a certain diet or a certain exercise routine or take specific medications, but there may be a lot of things in their everyday life that shape how and if that can actually happen in practice. Okay, great. So um, are those the type of factors that, that shape patient work, the things that you were just speaking about? Um, it can be actually quite broad um, in okay. nature. So, um, so let me, let me think about it in a couple of different ways. So you had also asked me to focus on this concept of patient ergonomics. So patient ergonomics is a field or a sub-discipline of the kind of field that I'm a part of, which is called human factors and ergonomics. And so in particular, patient ergonomics is the application of human factors and ergonomics and other related disciplines like human-computer interaction to improve patients and um, other non-professionals like family members. Um, the way that they're able to perform patient work, you know, so any kind of effortful activity that's really oriented towards improving health or meeting any health-related goals. And so within a concept of, um, or within the field of human factors, we sometimes talk about something called a work system. We can think about a work system as just more generally a system in which any individual is embedded. And so here, from a human factors perspective, and if you think about a patient, Right. A patient themselves has a lot of different characteristics that can shape patient work. That can be everything from demographic characteristics and identities that someone holds to their uh, expertise. So someone, for example, who may just be diagnosed with a chronic health condition would have kind of a different level of expertise about that chronic health condition than someone who may have lived with that condition for 30 years. Um, it could also be influenced by things like um, the specific tasks they're going to be asked to accomplish. So how difficult is it to manage the chronic health condition? Does it require, for example, going into a clinic once every once a year, for example, or does it require day-to-day -day management, thinking about what you're eating at every meal, for example, or making sure that you're taking um, you know, several medications in a particular more coordinated um, regimen? And then the technologies that you have to help support you or the tools that you have in place can also support that. So one um, example that many people are familiar with is if you think about something like a tracking app that you may use to track your calories or to track the nut nutrients that you're consuming, that can be one thing that can help you right, um, kind of attend to that aspect of what that patient work may look like. It could also be something like a Fitbit, right, that allows you to track your exercise routine. Um, it could be a reminder. So there is different applications that can send you reminders um, for, for those of us who um, may want to be making sure we're standing more than we're sitting, right? There's apps that mm -hmm. remind you to stand up. So all of those can be considered things that can support patient work. And, and again, part of this broader idea in, in our world of a work system. And then there's the things that are more contextual, right? Everything from the physical environment that you're in. So for example, um, are you living in a neighborhood where there are paths for walking or paths for biking? Or um, how, what does the terrain look like? How safe is the neighborhood that you're in? So if you're trying to get out to exercise, how conducive is the space that you're in for actually doing that? 
Um, another thing can be everything from cultural traditions to family dynamics um, to the number of people that are in your household and the responsibilities that you have in the context of those other individuals. So how easy is it to schedule and manage the aspects of taking care of one's um, health-related goals in the context of all of those social relationships? And then um, you know, there's lots of different contextual environments we can talk about, but we know we kind of go out to everything, including the health policy or the policy environment, you know, and how that shapes what patient work is able to be performed and not performed. And I'll get into a little bit of that when we start talking about disability a little bit later in this podcast. Okay, great. So can you tell us a little bit about your personal connection to this research? Absolutely. Um, like many people, my path to the work I do is, a, is not linear and, and straightforward. But I would say that um, I, I was I grew up with a father who is an engineer, and like many individuals who enjoy math and science, thought that that may be a good career path for me as well. And so when I started in undergrad, I was focused on industrial engineering, which broadly speaking is designing processes to help um, improve kind of flow through any type of system. So historically, that was focused on manufacturing settings, right? So how do we create more efficient systems in, in a manufacturing plant, for example? Um, I was at University of Wisconsin at a time when there was interest in this innovative application of industrial and systems engineering to healthcare. And that coincided, um, for better or for worse, with my own experience when I developed my first set of chronic health conditions in my early 20s. And so it was at a time when I was spending a lot of time in clinical spaces, a lot of time doing patient work, although I did not know that term at the time, and trying to think about how what I was studying, you know, related to what I was experiencing in my daily life. And so I became really interested in talking to people at Wisconsin who are looking at this intersection. And that's kind of where I first found my way um, to thinking about engineering and healthcare in this way. Um, and then more recently, when I went to graduate school, I worked with um, an advisor who was really interested, not looking specifically at clinical spaces, which is where the intersection of industrial engineering and healthcare began, which was looking at things like, how do we improve patient safety in hospitals? So for example, how do we ensure that mislabeling of specimens does not occur? How do we design processes to ensure that? Or how do we design processes to ensure that wrong site surgery doesn't occur? Those are some you know, specific examples. And she was interested, she, was a, uh, she is a nurse by training and also an engineer by training. Um, and her interest was in how do we look at what people are doing in their homes? How do we design technologies to support them when they're living with chronic health conditions? And again, that was a personal experience. And so that's the work I became really interested in. Um, during graduate school, I developed another set of health conditions, which led to some of the disabilities that I live with. So I am a wheelchair user. Um, I work in a way that um, because I cannot do any repeated motion for any long periods of time, I actually work with assistants who type for me. Um, and so that experience of disability has also continued to shape kind of the interface between or the dialogue between my personal experiences and the experiences of um, the many participants and communities that I work with. And so I often think like, like many people, 
there's an element of the personal that drives the types of questions that I'm interested in. Yeah, that makes sense. So thank you for that. So your work is highly interdisciplinary, which you've spoken a little bit about, but can you talk about your journey to this interdisciplinary work? Sure. So um, okay, going back again to my time as an undergraduate, after spending um, two years doing engineering work, I wanted to take a little bit of a break and um, spent some time studying abroad. And I ended up just kind of, you know, I'm trying to articulate why, and I'm not sure that I, I can exactly, except for thinking that it'd be nice to take a little bit of a break from doing the technical work I was doing. And so I ended up doing a study abroad program that took me to France and where I was exposed kind of for the first time to fields like anthropology and sociology, um, and also a lot of humanities and film studies and things like that. And I, so I came back from that, not really having any sense of how that integrates into the work I was doing, training to be an engineer, but it planted a bit of a seed. And so when I got to graduate school um, and I became interested in the work that we just discussed, I started thinking about, I want to really understand how to design technology in particular to support people in their homes, in their community spaces, but I have no real sense of how to go about doing that, right? As an engineer, we get very little training in how to be in those types of spaces and how to do the types of qualitative research that often needs to happen to get a deep understanding of what is happening in homes and communities. Mm. And so I like to say I wandered off of engineering campus and ended up spending a lot of time in the cultural anthropology department, some time in family studies, some time in sociology, trying to learn how to do that type of work and bringing those disciplines back into engineering. And then I would also add that um, you know, as that work grew and I learned how to do that work, when I came to um, UVA, I was interested in growing that work even further. So I, I felt like I had learned really nicely about how to be in these spaces, um, kind of with that lens of a social scientist but I wanted to move that work even more towards community engagement, how to do community-based participatory research. And so um, the colleagues that I have had here in particular who um, have a training in doing that work and kind of over the many years now, the communities that I've worked with, I feel like I've done a lot of training in how to do that um, through practice and by learning from community members, from colleagues who have had some experience doing that work and being able to bring that into the practice of engineering and informatics. Great, so much of your work focuses on historically marginalized communities. Can you tell me about this focus and how it has shaped the work that you do? Sure, so again, like kind of everything else, it's been a journey. Um, I became, um, when I was in graduate school and doing my dissertation work, one of the things and what my dissertation focused on was trying to see um, how we think about cultural values and how they are embedded in technology, particularly this type of technology that's designed for patients and their families to support patient work. And so that was my first interest in, in thinking about this intersection. And I worked um, in partnership with two community clinics, two federally qualified health centers, um, and spent time with some of uh, the people that were receiving care there, um, 
trying to make sense of how they um, experience living with type 2 diabetes, how they conceptualize their social networks, and how they engage those individuals um, in their health management with the idea of trying to understand um, if we're looking across people who hold a wide range of, in this case, it was racial, ethnic, and, and national identities, um, and asking them to talk about what that social structure looked like for them, how they engage with those individuals. How do we then create um, technology that reflects that diversity of experience? So that was kind of a starting point for me. And and like many of us, if you look back at the work we did before, there are things that we're um, happy about and there are things that, you know, kind of were planted a seed for a lot of growth from there. So I'd say that that work was still, um, it, you know, it, it took a step in towards thinking about really spending time in the community, spending time with patients to understand those experiences. But it was still, you know, a far cry from doing work that is building long-term partnerships with communities. And that's the direction my work has headed is really in terms of building these long-term partnerships with different communities, both locally in Charlottesville um, and also abroad. I do work in India and I do work in South Africa um, and also do work in Appalachia. And so some of these have been just long-term partnerships where it started out in many cases in ways that were kind of conceptualized um, in some ways by a, a research focus with kind of the expertise that I have at this intersection of engineering and, and thinking about healthcare and home and community spaces and technology, um, particularly early on when I was um, starting out. And I would say that it's been a wonderfully humbling experience um, in the sense that the more time I spend with community partners, the more my research has shifted and in terms of even how I describe it. And so one of the ways I might explain this is if we go back to thinking about this work system that I talked about, I would say that early on, my goal was really to say, let me try to understand all these other elements of the system. Let me try to understand the physical environment, the social environment, um, right, the characteristics of the individuals, for example, and then try to determine um, how do we design technology that is aligned with all of those different aspects right, of someone's daily life and their daily routines um, and the spaces in which they're inhabiting. And that has shifted a lot to saying, instead of focusing on how we design technology that is aligned with you know, all of these different elements, it's much more shifted to saying, you know, how do we change those broader structures? Um, and so less and less um, has my work focused specifically have uh, kind of go in with a technology focus and increasingly starts with listening to communities and what are the problems that they are trying to solve and then how can I bring in the expertise that I have? How can I bring in other collaborators to solve those problems? So it's a little bit of, um, you know, I guess nerve wracking is maybe a good way to put it and challenging, but um, I think ultimately is in service of, of the needs of the communities that um, I'm working with. Yes, I'm sure it's very important to be there for the long term to, to gain the trust of the communities you know, to really understand the work that you need to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's, absolutely. Yeah. So, and finally, you have been advocating for health equity for the disability community. And can you tell me about the particular challenges faced by this community? Sure. And so, as I mentioned earlier, I identify quite strongly um, with the disability community as someone who lives with multiple 
disabilities and multiple chronic health conditions. And um, a lot of the work, um, as, as we've been discussing, that I do focuses on health equity, broadly speaking. And of course, the way that work is um, oriented shifts depending on the particular work that I'm doing in terms of um, what population I'm focused on. Um, and often, right, people, of course, hold multiple intersecting identities, and sometimes it's thinking about multiple communities at once. Um, and in this case, when I focus on the disability community, I often like to say that we, if we're foregrounding the disability community, we're also simultaneously looking at communities of veterans, um, of racial and ethnic minorities, of older adults, since disability is overrepresented in all of those communities. Um, that said, you know, there's a, a lot of things to highlight here in terms of particular challenges. There are broader challenges, um, certainly, right, related to um, economics, uh, socioeconomic status, for example, about education, about histories of institutionalization um, and sterilization. And that's, you know, it could be a whole conversation in and of itself. But I think today what I'll, I'll focus on in a little bit more depth is thinking about the challenges that exist at the level of the healthcare system, which is where a lot of my work um, currently focuses on. And so as a kind of stepping stone into this, I talk about kind of a first step as being recognizing the disability community as a health disparity population, since often the disability community is not conceptualized in that way, even though the community faces significant health disparities related both to access to care and to quality of care. And so that's one particular challenge is just to make the fact that that disparity exists visible, broadly speaking, to be able to marshal resources, um, research, right, just general attention to solving this disparity. Another, um, another space here is just related to um, the legislation and the regulations that stem from that legislation. So, of course, there's been really important legislation um, like the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act, like the Rehabilitation Act, um, that have made spaces and services more accessible for people with disabilities. Um, that said, in a healthcare setting, you know, um, I believe the statistic is something like 75% of people with disabilities um, report is still experiencing barriers to accessing health and wellness services. And so sometimes, you know, that number seems really shocking to people knowing, right, that this type of legislation exists. Um, and so there's, you know, of course, reasons for that. And one is that um, this legislation focuses predominantly on public spaces. And so there is a need, for example, you can think about um, restrooms in healthcare spaces need to be accessible because they're considered public spaces, but that's not true of the exam rooms. So, right, just in terms of what the legislation covers, right, there's limitations there. Another is related to enforcement. So even though, right, the public restrooms are supposed to be accessible in healthcare settings, right, the majority are not accessible. And so there is a, a challenge just related to enforcement because enforcement, um, a legislation like the ADA requires someone to file a suit, right? That is really the only way enforcement happens. And so of course people with disabilities, right, for a whole host of reasons, right, can have all kinds of barriers um, for pursuing, right, that type of action, which leaves spaces to be inaccessible. And then um, kind of another point related to that is um, just in terms of the regulations that stem from the ADA, 
um, are not comprehensive, just like, you know, and in, in, in other spaces as well. And so um, an example here is that I live with a disability that makes uh, so that I have limited strength and dexterity in my um, arms and my upper extremities. And so if I'm trying to open a door, um, it's much easier for me if it's an automatic door or if it's a push button to get into a space, right, than trying to open the door um, using my, my physical strength. Um, but that type of um, accommodation, right, that type is not covered right now. So you don't need to have that type of um, door in place to be considered ADA compliant. So that kind of fit, you know, fits under this um, second umbrella. A third one um, that I'll use kind of to wrap up um, my examples here is related to telehealth. So, of course, during the pandemic, all of us experienced this transition to telehealth where we were able to um, seek health care you know, from our own homes, from our own community spaces um, instead of going into clinical settings. And this is another space where there are particular challenges for the disability community. And one of these is that often telehealth technologies are not accessible for people with disabilities. And this can be everything from being able to input information into the system um, right, and then having the types of accessibility features enabled to make that easy um, to just the way that telehealth is designed. So we often think of telehealth as an interaction between one patient and one clinician. But for someone with disabilities, you may require some other people to be there as well. So you may need um, an ASL interpreter, you may need um, a speech-to-speech -speech translator. You may also have a care partner or someone like a family member or a friend who is assisting you, um, you know, at, as you navigate your, your health care and your health conditions. And so in a time like a pandemic where those four people may be in four different spaces, right, a current telehealth system may not be a good fit. Great. Thank you. So thank you so much, uh, Professor Valdez. I know there's plenty of more to talk about. I think that um, this gives um, some information for about your work and your research and for our uh, alumni, friends, and families to think about um, and uh, to follow up themselves with some more information. So I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends, and families. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks again. And thank you for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find our podcasts on Spotify and with the Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thanks again, and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.